Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. This is the show that's all about taking your health, your body, and your life to that next level. Today's guest is Hal Elrod, speaker, author, and creator of The Miracle Morning. In fact, many of you will already be familiar with Hal's work because you've read The Miracle Morning. You started doing the morning rituals that he outlines in his book. And I'll tell you, Giselle is a huge fan of The Miracle Morning. She read that book, started implementing the meditation, the affirmations. It's something that she does so regularly, and it's had a big impact on her life. For those of you who don't know how, he has an incredible story. He wasn't always this productivity guru who speaks all over the world, is one of the highest rated keynote speakers in America, and number one best-selling author of one of the highest rated books in the world with over 1,500 plus five-star reviews. He had a life-changing moment, an accident that made him reevaluate his entire life and where he was going with it. After that, he's been on this unstoppable journey of helping people get up earlier to dominate their day before anyone else is even up. It's such an amazing story and amazing strategy. So if you're looking to become more productive, if you're looking to get an edge on the competition, if you're looking to wake up and get things done, then you're going to love this interview with Hal Elrod. Hal Elrod, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast. Thank you for having me, Ted. I'm, I'm ready for this, man. Let's let's make a legendary episode. Absolutely. I'm psyched as well. Hal, you are a legendary motivational speaker. You're the author of The Miracle Morning. You've created such a sensation with that book. You have a podcast yourself called Achieve Your Goals with Hal Elrod. Can you say a little bit about what you do for the people who may not know who you are, and then I want to dive into your story. Sure. It always here feels weird to hear someone else say the stuff that you do, and you're like, really? I, I do all that stuff. Weird. you know. <laughs> but uh, no, so for me, it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever read, uh, you probably read The 4-Hour Workweek. In the beginning of that book, he talks about when somebody asks me, what do you do? He goes, it's a hard question for me to answer. And I feel kind of the same way because I go, well, I'm an author, but I'm a speaker, but I put on live events, but we run masterminds, and but I have a book series, you know. And so it's kind of like one thing at a time that's just accumulated into a lot of different projects and, and, and careers or ventures or whatever. But but I'll just I'll say this, that of everything that all of my work, the two things that I've found that seem to make the biggest impact of what I do are the Miracle Morning book or and, and, and the book series, you know, but that practice has been changing people's lives in ways that I don't know that I ever really imagined it could. Just really profound changes for people, all ages, all walks of life. Like it's really universal. And now it's doing it around the world. Like we just, we're, it's being translated and published in 21 languages. Number one book in Korea, like the number one best selling book in Korea, which is just wow. it's surreal for me. But 
but yeah, so there's the book. I think that's the, 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 been the biggest, the most widespread impact. But then also our live event. Every December we do this live event called Best Year Ever Blueprint. And I always tell people, I don't call it a live event. I call it a live experience because it's extraordinarily interactive. You're not just sitting there taking notes the whole time. In fact, there's that's a very small part of anybody being on stage teaching you something. It's totally engaging with each other while you're at the audience. And anyway, so uh, Best Year Ever Blueprint, the live event has made really profound impacts for people. So, so there you go. So of all the things I do, hosting the podcast, all of that, it's the Miracle Morning book and the Best Giver Blueprint live experience that, that seem to be the ones that, that make the biggest impact. Absolutely. And I'm fired up just listening to you because everything that you just mentioned is an extension of your passion to help people start to conquer whatever it is that is going on in their lives that's holding them back from really unlocking their potential. And what I'd love to get into now is your story, because although you've told it probably thousands of times, Hal, <laughs> I want to do that to set you up because this is the first time that we've had you, hopefully the first of many times, on the Legendary Life Podcast. So you've had two crazy life events happen. Can you talk about what led you to this life that you now live? Yeah. So the first, what I call rock bottom that, that I faced, and I think we've all had rock bottoms. The way that I define that is just any, any moments or, or times of adversity in our, in our lives that are more difficult, challenging, scary, monumental than what we've had before, you know, and, and when you're young, it's all relative. So like when I was in seventh grade and my girlfriend broke up with me, like that was my first rock bottom, you know, like at that time, my world, it felt like it was ending. Like, you know, what's the point of going on if she's not going to be with me anymore? You know, so it's relative. So I would never say that one person's rock bottom is is better or worse or easier or harder than someone else's. But when I was 19 years old, I was driving home from, actually, I guess I was 20, 20 years old, driving home from a, a meeting. I'd given a speech at a conference for, for the company that I work for. I got started early and driving home that night, I was hit head on by a drunk driver at 70 miles an hour on the freeway. I was driving a Ford Mustang. I was hit head on by a full-size Chevy truck going 70 miles an hour operated by a drunk driver. The worst was actually yet to come, you know, hitting head on, obviously. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I, I don't know what damage occurred from that part, but the worst of it was I spun, my car spun off the drunk driver sideways and the car that was behind me, just in my rearview mirror, a few car lengths crashed into my door, my driver's side door at 70 miles an hour. And I always tell people like, if you're listening, look over your left shoulder and imagine that a car is coming at you at 70 miles an hour and just crashes into your door. And what you might imagine happening is, I mean, the whole left side of my car crushed the left side of my body. I broke 11 bones instantaneously, fractured my pelvis in three places, broke my femur in half, broke my humerus bone behind my bicep in half, shattered my elbow, punctured my lung, ruptured my spleen, severed my ear, shattered my eye socket, top of my skull was sliced open, and I started losing a lot of blood, and I, I bled to death. I was actually f uh, 50 minutes after the car accident. That's how long it took the rescue crew to use the jaws of life and cut the roof off and pull me out. And when they did, I had lost so much blood that I actually died. And I died on the side of the freeway and they had to, you know, hook me up to an IV and give me CPR and pull out the defibrillators. And I was clinically dead for approximately six minutes. They revived me. They rushed me to the hospital. I flatlined twice more while I was in the hospital. They brought me back again and I was in a coma. And six days later, I came out of the coma to be told that I would uh, most likely never walk again, that I had permanent brain damage, a lot of broken bones. My body was, you know, scarred 
beyond belief and, and you know, never that wasn't going to go away. And at 20 years old or at any age, but at 20, it was a really difficult reality to face and, you know, make a long story short, I decided I can't change this. Like I was at first, you know, I was kind of confused and kind of like, what does this mean? And I had a lot of plans that involved walking and I just said, you know what? I can't change it. I can't change it, but I can make the best of it. And I told my dad, I said, dad, I'm going to be the, if you, if I'm ever, if I'm stuck in a wheelchair the rest of my life, I'll be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair. I've decided that because either way, I'm in a wheelchair. I could be miserable and be a victim and be complaining, or I could be grateful for what I have and focus on creating the life that I want uh, within, you know, within the meat, what I can do. And I said, but I'm not accepting that yet as my fate. I'm putting all my energy into what I want, which is walking again. So I'm accepting the worst case scenario so it doesn't have any power over me. I can be at peace with it. But I said, I'm visualizing walking every day. I'm praying about it every day. I'm thinking about it. I'm imagining it. And until I'm proven otherwise, I'm going to keep the faith that it's possible. But if it's not, I've already decided I've accepted the worst case scenario. Yeah, so that was the response. And three weeks later, I took my first step and, you know, went on to get back to normal. And and I went wakeboarding today. So it's, you know, I was able to kind of get back to the life that I had before and, and then create the life of my dreams at the risk of, you know, sounding cliche. Absolutely. And it's such a great story because I've had a lot of people tell their stories on here and I have a story and it's so important that people hear stories like yours, how, because it's so relatable. It's so possible for any of us driving on the road. We drive every day. And sometimes we think that there's maybe we're more afraid to get into a plane and it might crash. But the reality is this is something that happens a lot in drunk driving and hearing how you were able to take that as a springboard to something bigger in your life. But how I got to ask you, there are a lot of people who've been through less and they're beaten down by it. And they didn't say, you know what, whatever, if if I'm going to be in a wheelchair, I'm going to be the happiest person in a wheelchair. If I'm going to be the a divorce, I'm going to be the happiest person that's ever been divorced. How did that happen for you? Where did that mindset come from you? So it, it came from a very specific place. I mean, I would definitely say part of it was my parents upbringing. My, when I was eight years old, my sister died and she was only 18 months. I was home with my mom. It was about 10 a.m. Uh, I think I was still sleeping. It was the summer. And um, uh, I heard my mom screaming across the hall, my baby, my baby. And, and uh, you know, being woken up out of a deep sleep, I thought she was playing with my sister. And then all of a sudden I could, I sensed the terror in her voice. And I ran across the hall and my sister's face was just blue. And, you know, she's a baby and she was in my mother's arms. She'd had a sudden heart failure. And my dad was at work and my sister was away with a friend. And the, you know, obviously, I mean, the par- every parent's worst nightmare, but I watched my mom. I mean, I watched her grieve and I watched her and my dad, you know, the whole family grieve. And, but, but, but within a matter of months, and I don't remember if it was three months or six months, but somewhere in that, I mean, it was pretty, you know, relatively quickly. My mom was leading a support group for other parents that had lost children. Wow. So you had leaders already. Your parents were leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they taught me that, you know, that when like you can take adversity, even the most tragic adversity, and you can turn it into an advantage by doing good with it, you know? And, and so I think that seed was planted at an early age. However, it was my mentor. I, I had started selling Cutco a year and a half before the car accident. That, that was where I was given that speech that night at a, at a Cutco sales conference. And 
for anyone that doesn't know Cutco, it's you know the world's finest cutlery. It's high quality kitchen knives, and I had, I had my buddy convinced me to give it a shot, and I I was like I don't want to sell knives, you know, and in people's homes like this sounds terrible, <laughs> and uh, it ended up being like the greatest opportunity in my life, and it shaped a lot of the qualities that I think contribute to everything I've done since then. Is just they really started when I from that career that job, but my mentor that trained me uh, and managed me throughout Cutco, his name is Jesse Levine, and he taught me something in training called the five minute rule, uh, which states it's okay to be negative when things go wrong, but not for more than five minutes. Like after five minutes, you accept it. You can't change it. Like you basically said, he literally taught us to set our timer on our phone for five minutes when, when like, you know, and this was like when I, you know, it was milder adversity than a head on collision with a drunk driver. It was like, you know, you know, customer cancels the order or you get a no sell. But the point was like, how do you maintain kind of like, how do you man, you know, it was really a lesson in emotional intelligence. Now that I think about it, like how do you manage your emotional state in the midst of adversity so that you can keep moving forward? Right. Because most of us let it really affect us. And so you set your timer for five minutes, you bitch, moan, complain, cry, vent, punch a wall, like whatever you got to do. But when that timer goes off after five minutes, you take a deep breath and you say, can't change it. And you remind yourself that if I can't change it, which if it's in the past, it doesn't matter if it's five minutes or five months or five years or five decades, you, you can't change it. You know, unless you're Marty McFly with a DeLorean, like you can't go back. Mm-hmm. And, and so he taught us like, the, like as an intelligent human being, the only logical choice you have is to accept it, be at peace with it, and then focus 100% of your energy off of the past and onto the present and the future. Where do you want to go? And what can you do now within your reality, within your means to get you there? And that's actually what I applied. In fact, the doctors thought I was in denial. Like, so the way that I just opened up and shared the story, people, some people were like, what? Like, how do you, you just accept it? I don't, I don't get it. Well, the doctors didn't get it either. They called my parents in about a week after I came out of the coma and they said, we're concerned with Hal. Physically, he's made it through the worst. He's alive. Like they, they just wanted me to be stable because I, I had died essentially three times at flatline. Sure. And so that was like their main concern. Like he's stable. They said, but emotionally, we're concerned that He's delusional and in denial, and they said because every time we interact with Hal, he's always smiling and laughing and joking, and they go, that's not normal. You know, for a 20-year-old that's being told you're probably never going to walk again, your body is horrifically scarred, you're, you know what I mean, you have brain damage, you have like no short-term memory, and they said, so we want you to talk to him and get find out how he's really feeling because this is kind of actually common, they said, with accident victims where his reality is so painful so unimaginable that he can't handle it. He just, he just checked out. He can't accept it. He's just checked out. So my dad came in and he, you know, I didn't know this conversation happened, but I was watching TV in, in the hospital bed. Now keep in mind, this is a week after like two weeks after the crash, a week after he came out of the coma. So I mean, my, my ears sewn on, my eyes bandaged shut. You know, it's like my eye socket was broken. I'm in a hospital bed. I can't move. I can't walk. My arms got metal rods in it. My legs got metal rods. You know, so like that's the condition I was in. And I'm watching Oprah literally, you know, like on the TV. And my dad comes in and asks if I could turn off the TV and talk to him. And I look over and he's like, you know, there was a lot of crying, obviously, but like he had, he was holding back tears and his, his face was red, his eyes were welling, you know, welled up. And I thought, oh, he's got some terrible news for me or something. And I turned off the TV and I said, what, what's going on, dad? What's up? And he said, and he basically just relayed the doctor's sentiments, their concerns of my demeanor of being all happy, go lucky and how it wasn't real or it wasn't normal. And they wanted to get to the bottom of how I was really feeling. And they said that I should be sad and depressed and angry that that was normal. 
And my dad said, "How it's okay to feel those things, buddy. I know you're a positive guy, but it's okay to feel those things. I can't imagine what you're feeling. I, your mom and I are a mess, and we didn't even go through it, you know. And and of course, as a parent now, I I beg to differ. I think they had it worse than I did. You know, seeing your I can't imagine seeing my child through that. I think they had it worse than me. But I said, Dad, I'm not faking it. I'm not. I said, Don't you remember? I live by the five minute rule. And he said, well, remind me, what do you mean? And you know, I, I reminded him, dad, it's okay to be negative, but not for more than five minutes. I said, it's been two weeks since the accident. Like my five minutes is up a long time ago. And I said, and that's when I told him what I said a few minutes ago, which is I said, I, I can't change that I was in a car accident, but I can choose how I respond to it and how I interpret it with the meaning I give to it. And, I, and that's when I told him the, if I am in a wheelchair the rest of my life, I've decided already, I've thought it through and I'll be the happiest person you've ever seen in a wheelchair because I'm in a wheelchair either way. And it's my choice. My attitude is my choice. And I said, I, I, I'm grateful. And, and it's funny. I said, Dad, I always, you know, they say everything happens for a reason. Well, I've been trying to figure out, like, what are the reasons? And I've been going through my head of all the different reasons. And one of them, I said, I always wanted to be a, you know, not always, but ever since I started giving speeches for Cutco a year and a half prior, I said, I, I wanted for the last year and a half, I've wanted to be like a motivational speaker, you know, keynote speaker, like the, you know, Tony Robbins or something. I said, but you guys were so good to me. I had a pretty normal childhood. I haven't really, what have I really gone through? <laughs> overcome? Right. You know what yeah, I Yeah, sure. I said, so I said, I would have never asked for this. I'd rather be on stage because I made like billions of dollars and I was, you know, that would be way cooler and easier. Uh, maybe not easier, but I said, I said, but you know, I go, I can see I'm, if I'm committed to overcome this in the most positive, proactive way that I can. And then I, I don't know how, but I, I feel like I will be then equipped to share it with other people to help them, them overcome their adversity. You know? And so that was it. I mean, that five minute rule. And for people like that, listen, they go, well, yeah, five minutes. Like, can I get, I need longer than five minutes. To yeah, sure. Can I get five days or weeks or, you know, but, and the reality is, is that it may sound like not very much time, but what happens is by you applying the five minute rule and whether that means, you know, wear a bracelet, you know, get a little rubber band that made that says five minute rule on it, or, you know, make a sign or make your, put it on your phone or whatever. But what happens is at first it feels like not enough time and you set your time for five minutes when something goes wrong and you go, son of a, you know, guy, and you, just, <laughs> you know, you get upset and the timer goes off and you go, I still feel mad. I'm still upset, you know, but what happens is if you really stick to it, you go, okay, deep breath, can't change it. I can't change what happened. What can I focus? What can I change? What can I control? What's in my control? And by being aware of it, you shift the way you respond to adversity. And, and it could be, tr you said it, traffic. Like I use this in traffic. I used to be upset and, you know, you're trapped for half an hour and you're stressed the whole time. Well, now I go, I'm not, I can't change the traffic, but I can enjoy it. Like I can enjoy every moment on the way to the destination. I mean, it's a metaphor for life. It's a great metaphor for life is we, you can't change what's already happened, but you can enjoy every moment on the way to your destination or destinations, whatever that may be for you. That is for me, I apply the five minute rule to this day, every day and, you know, and, and from little to big adversities. Absolutely. And such a powerful lesson. And like you said, emotional intelligence and getting some leverage on ourselves when we just want to fly off the handle, things are going our way. And such a powerful technique and tool that we can all use to start spending the time to get over something and then going on to focusing on what really matters, what is truly going to make our lives better and how I want to ask you something because we're in an interesting state here in, in the U S right now. So many people 
are upset. People are angry and think Trump is a maniac. People think Hillary is a liar. People see the, <laughs> the injustice and violence towards minorities in the media. They see the retaliations towards the police. But all the data says that we're living in the golden age of humanity. It's never been a better time. Poverty, malnutrition, illiteracy, child labor, infant mortality are falling faster than at any time in history. Yet when polled, 6% of Americans think that more, more Americans believe in astrology and reincarnation than the truth that we're living in this golden age. So I want to ask you, when you see those things on Facebook or the media or wherever you're exposed to them or, or conversations with people that you're having dinner, how do you view things? How do you help people stay focused on what truly is going to what's good, what truly matters in their life and what will truly help them achieve the type of life that they want? Well, I was going to say astrology and reincarnation. Those are my go-to strategies. So um, I'm just kidding. Um, no. So, I mean, here's the way that the, like, the way that I look at the world is I just think it's about taking responsibility. Like I, when I wrote my first book years ago, Taking Life Head On, and the, that was one of the big principles I talked about that, that for me was my approach to the accident was taking 100% responsibility. So I think people get hung up on this because they, they confuse responsibility with blame. They go, well, I'm not responsible for the way that I was treated or what my parents did to me or my, you know, my employer or the call, like, how can I be responsible? It's not my fault, right? They look for blame. And I think that blame determines who's at fault, but responsibility determines who's committed to changing things, right? Like, and, and that to me is, yeah, like the, in going back to my car accident, a drunk driver was to blame. He was at fault, but I couldn't rely on him to take responsibility for making my life the way that I wanted it to be, right? Yeah. I couldn't put, put, put the responsibility on him to, for my happiness, you know? So for me, the moment you take responsibility, or I think the moment you take responsibility for everything in your life is the moment that you claim the power to change anything in your life or create anything in your life. So I look at it as like, I'm going to create my own economy. You know, when the economy crashes, like, you know, it's, it's kind of to your point of what the, the stats or the evidence shows, you know, in the Great Depression, I believe it was more, I'm not looking at any stats, but I think it was more millionaires came out of that than any other time in history, right? Mm. Like they started, the seeds were planted and they took advantage of opportunities in those difficult times by helping people, you know, to, to, get where they wanted to go. And the same thing's happening in 2008, right? A bunch of people when they, and I was, I suffered the economic crash. Like that's how the miracle morning was born. 2008, like I had left my sales position. I had started my own coaching business. I had started speaking. I'd written that first book. I'd bought my first house. Like life was great. I'd met the woman of my dreams. And then 2008 hits and like I lose almost all of it. I kept the most important part, which was my future wife who I'm married to now. But uh, I lost over half my clients, half my income, lost my house. I was in deep depression. I got in the worst shape of my life financially, physically. I stopped exercising. I, my body fat percentage tripled in six months, like lowest point in my life. But from that, the miracle morning was born and everything that I am today and everything I have today was born during that time. And so, and, and the way that it happened is instead of blaming the economy, I thought, how can I become the person that I need to be to create the success I want in my life. And when I say success, I mean not just 
financial or career. I mean, I mean, success physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, spiritually, relationally in every single area. How can I develop myself to become that person? And that's where the Miracle Morning became the answer. It wasn't going to be a book. It wasn't called the Miracle Morning. Like it just it was I had this epiphany that I've got to dedicate time every day to my personal development. I've got to create the most extraordinary personal development routine known to man or at least known to me. And I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to start with that. So I put myself in a peak physical, mental, intellectual, and spiritual state every single morning so that I'm, you know, I win the morning so that I can win the day. And I thought if I do that every day, if I start every day with personal development at the highest level, it's only a matter of time before I become the person, even though the economy is a mess, that can turn my life, my finances, everything around. And I was now, granted, I was thinking when I said I, I was thinking six to 12 months, like the compound effect, like if I do this every day, six to 12 months, I should start to see my outer world, meaning my bank account, my you know physical body reflect my inner world, which is who I'm becoming. And it was less than two months of doing my first morning ritual, which is now called the Miracle Morning, uh, that I more than doubled my income. And in less than two months, I more than doubled my income. I went from being in the worst shape of my life physically, having never run more than a mile because I hated running. And I don't use the word hate very often. That's one of the only things I say hate around. Um, I hated running, so I decided I committed to run a 52-mile ultra marathon. Wow. Because I thought who I would have to become to do that, I, I don't even know who that guy is. Like, I've never met that guy. And so I committed publicly to it. I committed to raise money for charity. That way, my, you know, I was like, I, I couldn't turn back. I committed publicly. And, and within two months, I was, you know, training for that. And my, I had been depressed at that time because of the economic collapse. And I was like, I got to change that. And my depression went away within a matter of days. And because my life changed so fast, I started calling it my quote unquote miracle morning because it felt like a miracle. But again, it wasn't a book title. It wasn't going to be a book. I taught it to one of my coaching clients, Katie, and uh, she goes, Hal, I'm not a morning person. I go, no, 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 I know. Neither was I. <laughs> like, let me, here, I'll give you some like, tips. Here's how you actually beat the snooze button. I, like, I figured this out on my own. And a week later, we get on a call, and I go, so did you try that miracle morning thing I was telling you about? She goes, oh, my God, Hal. She said, not only did I wake up every morning at the time we had committed to, which was six, after two days, I got up at five because it was so good. She said, I just had the best week in my sales career. I finished a book that I've been slowly reading for like six months. I finished it in days. She goes, it's amazing. I'm a morning person. And that was when the light bulb went off and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like if this changed my life and I wasn't a morning person and this changed Katie's life and she's not a morning person, this could change anybody's life. And that was where I was like, like I, I think I need to write a book about it, and yeah. it took it took three years, but you know now kind of the rest is, is history, as they say. And there's literally over you know over two hundred thousand people have bought the book and read the book, and and you know hundreds of thousands of people do the Miracle Morning every day in seventy countries, and to, I'm still in awe of it every day. But but it's you know it's like I said earlier, it's like nothing I've ever done has made an impact as as much as the Miracle Morning has. So cool, so powerful, and the two big things I heard there was always find the opportunity in adversity because there always is an opportunity. You just have to be creative enough and clear-headed enough to find it. And the second thing you said was 
you hated running, but you signed up for an ultra marathon because it would force you to become someone else, someone who you couldn't even like, who is that person? <laughs> and so many of us, we are at a place in our life where we're like, why does this suck so bad? Why can't I get my finances? Why am I unhappy? Why? And it's simply because we haven't challenged ourselves to change. It's not about listening to a podcast or reading a book or doing anything like that. It's about forcing ourselves to do something different in our life, to become someone different in our life. I love that. And to your point about not being a morning person, I actually have a, a question from a listener. John asks, and I'm sure you've heard this many thousands of times, how. Huh. But how to maximize your morning if a slow for a slow moving person, meaning I don't get up and do a hundred things, I'm more productive early afternoons. How would you help that person if he said something like that to you? So in the book, arguably the most important chapter in the book is I think it's the shortest chapter in the book. And it's called, I give it a clever title. It's called the five step snooze proof wake up strategy. It even says for the snoozeaholics in parentheses. But um, mm -hmm. the uh, if it wasn't for these five steps, I would still be hitting the snooze button. In fact, if I don't implement these steps, I hit the snooze button, which you know, which is still rare. But today, I, you're saying, yeah. In wow. fact, I'll share the most important keys here, and the first one that I'll share this: if I don't do this, I hit the snooze button every time, and that which only happens if I am typically traveling and I like crash out when I'm like watching TV and I don't I remember to do this, which is move the alarm clock across the room. That is the linchpin in these, this wake-up strategy is, in fact, I was being introduced by a CEO at, a, at an event I was speaking at in New York, and it was made up of like 50 CEOs, and uh, David Schnurman, the CEO of lawline.com, introed me, and he said, I, I don't know if Hal's going to talk about this, so I want to make sure it, it gets mentioned, and he said, move your alarm clock across the room. He said, that might sound simple, and when I read it, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, but I did it, and he said, if it wasn't for that, I'd be hitting the snooze button every time, and here's why. Most of us keep our alarm clock within arm's reach, you know? Sure. And I don't care who you are, but when you wake up in the morning, you have, it's what I call your wake up motivation level or WUML for short, right? Your wake up motivation level is that how on a scale of one to 10, how motivated are you to jump out of bed when the alarm goes off? And for most of us, it's like a zero to a 0.5, you know, it's very low. And so that is something that if you are making the decision on whether or not you're going to wake up when the alarm clock's within arm's reach in those first few moments when you're still half asleep, you're going to make the wrong decision every time, you know? Your discipline, your willpower, your energy is very low. So if your alarm clock's across the room, and for me, I put mine, it's in my bathroom, so I have to get up and actually walk into the bathroom. When you do that, you go from like a, you know, a zero on a scale of one to 10 to like a three or, you know, maybe let's say like a, even a two or a three at the low end, where if you're upright, you're way more awake than if you're just reaching your arm over with your eyes closed, smacking, you know, looking for the alarm clock. So that's probably the biggest key. And then once you do that, go directly into the next step is brushing your teeth, right? And, and it might sound trip, you know, simple, but that's the point is these steps are not designed to be advanced. They're designed to be done when you're half asleep, when your eyes are still barely open. But, but, but here's the thing is every minute that you stay upright, your body acclimates to being awake. Mm. And so you brush your teeth and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm a little more awake. And then the next step and one of the most important as well is you drink a full glass of water. So for me, I keep a full glass of water on my bathroom counter the night before, I fill it up. And I don't know why we're never taught this, but we, when we wake up in the morning, we're almost always dehydrated by default. So like, true. 
you haven't drinking any water for six, seven, eight hours, you know? And we think we're tired, but we're often tired because we're dehydrated. And so most people, their first beverage in the morning isn't water. It's what? Coffee. It's coffee, which yeah. is a diuretic, which further dehydrates, <laughs> right? So you're like, yeah. oh, I wake up dehydrated. Then I drink something to dehydrate me more for a short-lived energy boost that then makes me cra- – and then we wonder why we're tired in the af- you know, mid-morning or afternoon. So, so the first thing I do is I have a full glass – like a tall you know, 20-ounce glass of water by the alarm clock. I down it like I was a college kid at a keg party, you know, like I just, I mean, just like pound it and then, you know, put on my workout clothes. That's the next step. And that way I'm already dressed for the day. And uh, again, I'm telling my body that it's time to wake up, you know, and it doesn't mean that I'm ready to do jumping jacks and cartwheels, but, but I'm, I'm awake now. And I go into the living room. I, that's a big key. Get out of your bedroom. I go into the living room and I, and I sit down to do my, I start with silence, the little meditation then read my affirmations and do a visualization. Then I do some some exercise, some reading, some journaling. Those are the six practices of the Miracle Morning. As a bonus tip to answer the question, there's no certain order which you have to do these six practices. The exercise being one of them for people and for me, if, if I wake up and I'm groggy and I'm like, I just, I don't, I'm not feeling it, uh, I will do 60 seconds of jumping jacks. And it's amazing how 60 seconds of jumping jacks takes your wake up motivation level from a three or four or wherever it is, if it's low, to like a seven, you know, or eight. I mean, like in in a minute, I mean, it's quick, you know, it's a quick, fast way to get your heart rate going, get blood and oxygen to your brain. You think clearer, you feel better, you have more energy, et cetera. Then you can go through the rest of your miracle morning. I love it. How so simple, you know, put the, the phone at across the room for you. So you have to actually get out of bed, out of those warm covers when it's probably cold because you had the AC nice and low and then get up, make sure you go brush your teeth down a glass of water, not necessarily in that order <laughs> to, to down the bit of uh, toothpaste that you might have, but absolutely yeah. just get going. How I want to ask you one more question. I know we're coming up on our time because you have someone who's going to be on your podcast. You, you have uh, an yeah. interview to do, but what time do people need to wake up? Because how I'm not a person who struggles to get out of bed in the morning. I wake up around six thirty, seven sometimes, but should I be waking up earlier? Should someone listening right now be waking up earlier? What do you recommend with waking up earlier? So it's about waking up earlier than you do now, right? And so that's why it's relative. It's not a specific time. There are some people that you know talk about, like Robin Sharma, for example. I'm a huge fan of Robin's. In fact, we, we're doing a Miracle Morning movie right now, a documentary. And uh, we got to interview Robin for the movie, which was amazing because when I was writing the book, I was studying who else talks about morning rituals, and I found Robin. And you know, he, he actually has something he calls the 5 a.m. club, and I think it's coming out with a book called the 5 a.m. club. So, so some people you know talk about that golden hour, that 5 a.m. hour. For me, it's just I tell people, look, 30 minutes for 30 days. Wake up 30 minutes earlier. Like, that's the way to start the Miracle Morning and make it a habit is set your alarm clock back for 30 minutes earlier than you do now. And it could be 60. I mean, a lot of people want to do 60. They want more time, but but that's it. And, and if that means you go to bed an hour earlier, then you go to bed an hour earlier. You know, it's, it's one thing I talk about in the book is how to get by on less sleep and still function well. How many hours of sleep that we need is not set in stone. It is a absolute variable for each person based on many other variables. 
So for example, your diet, if you have unhealthy food, especially for dinner or late at night, and then you're sleeping and you're, you know, you have this unhealthy food in your stomach, well, it's detoxing. Like your body's literally eliminating poison all night <laughs> that you fed it, you know? Mm. You could sleep longer than someone that eats, you know, really clean and, and, and healthy food, especially in the evening. So their body has a lot of good fuel to, to, to give it energy and that digest quickly and easily. So the person that's eating healthy at night can get by, can have, is going to wake up a lot more refreshed even on less hours of sleep than the person that's sleeping eight or nine hours but eating unhealthy. So there's so many variables, right? There's nothing, it's not set in stone, but I do talk about how do you hack your sleep, the amount of hours you need so you can actually have more energy on less sleep. But yeah, so that, that's the simple answer is go to bed 30 minutes earlier, wake up 30 minutes earlier, or 30 to 60 and you know, wake up 30 to 60, whatever you want to do. But I always say just if you want to start simple, 30 minutes earlier for 30 days. And in the book, I talk about the psychology of implementing and changing habits and how to successfully complete those 30 days because most of us aren't very good at changing habits. You know, absolutely. Right? Yeah, we're we're terrible. Like, you know, it's like you say, I'm going to change. Like, New Year's resolutions are the best example. Oh, I have a New Year's resolution of something I'm going to do. And that's really just saying I'm going to change a habit. And, you know, I think they say, like, I don't remember the stats, but it's, it's a large percentage of people, the majority of people quit their New Year's resolutions within the first week, right? Because they, they've never been taught like the psychology and the strategy of how do you successfully change and sustain new habits? Well, maybe we can get you back on the show to talk more about that. I know you got something coming up right now and how it was such a pleasure connecting with you. Finally, I've known about you for a couple of years and finally got you to come on the show for the first time. Really excited about it. I know this episode is going to pump people up. I know it's pumping the people up right now who are hearing it and how it was such a pleasure. Where would you like people to go to learn more about what you do, about the Miracle Morning, and about everything else that you offer? Well, I always tell people the you know you can get the book on Amazon, uh, and that's you you know the if you go to Amazon and look for the Miracle Morning, there's links there to Kindle and audio, you know Audible and for the audiobook and all that good stuff. If you're an iBooks user, you can get it on iBooks. Um, I think they've got it. I think they have it at Barnes and Noble. So MiracleMorning.com is the is kind of the hub website. But I, I I've really been focusing on inviting people to that live event that I mentioned, the Best Year Ever Blueprint. And so I would encourage anybody listening to take just a few minutes, go to Best bestyeareverlive.com and scroll down right under the first fold of the website is a video and watch that. It's a three minute video. And I always tell people, watch that video because it'll tell you everything that you need to know about whether or not you want to join us in December in San Diego. Um, it, you'll either, you know, when you watch it, you'll either be inspired and go, wow, this is exactly what I need. Or you'll go, those people are nuts and I want nothing to do with them. <laughs> but like, you'll know one way or the other right away. So yeah, so come hang out with us for a few days in San Diego. It is a it really a life-changing experience. You can hear from people that were there last year. Uh, this will be the third year that we're doing it, and it's the second weekend in December. Go to besteyeareverlive.com and check out the video, and uh, hopefully I'll see you in San Diego. Absolutely, and all those links, everything that Hal just mentioned will be on the show notes for this episode. Hal Elrod, thank you so much for your energy, your passion, your knowledge, and most importantly, your time. All right, appreciate you, Ted. Thanks so much for your leadership and having me on. Wow, what an episode with Hal Elrod. Just brought the energy, brought the strategies, and his story is incredible. And I love 
hearing stories like that because it gets you to think about your life differently. Even with everything I've been through, I still listen to people's stories like Howell's story. And I think to myself, whoa, what an incredible challenge and, and obstacle that this person had to overcome. And listening to how overcame it and what he did. So number one is attitude is everything. How could have let that accident, that threat of never being able to walk again, he could have let it crush him, but he had this attitude and he could be upset for a couple minutes and that was it. Then he had to get back to his life because you can't change external circumstances, but you do have direct control over you. You can change the way you feel. Of course, you may have to be sad for a little while. You may have to grieve for a little while, but eventually you've got to come back to the acceptance of where you are, what happened, whatever it is for you. And you've got to take control of your attitude. You've got to find the silver lining. You've got to find the opportunity in adversity. The second takeaway is that waking up early before others are up is an incredible time to get things done. And if you're a person who can go from hitting the snooze button three times to rushing to Starbucks to stand in line. Actually, you don't stand in line because you order your Starbucks on the app. So you just run in there and grab things and go. You don't even have time to to chit chat with the people in line or with the barista. You just got to get in there and go and go to work. If you go from that person to being a person who gets to bed earlier, wakes up earlier, does all these things that sets them up for success, your life can change and it can change dramatically. But you have to make the necessary changes. You've got to make an effort in. And I'd love for you to get back to me and tell me how things work for you when you start getting up earlier. So if you experiment with that, then I would love to hear from you. And you can reach out to me. You can just go to legendarylightpodcast.com and type into the chat. You don't even need to email me, but if you'd like to, ted at legendarylightpodcast.com is where you can reach me. And the third thing is that you heard how he wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. I mean, that just doesn't seem reasonable for me. And why I'm saying that is, We all need to understand the limits of our body. And that's the third takeaway. And it wasn't a takeaway so much from what Hal said. It was from listening to what Hal does and saying, okay, well, how would I make that work for me? And to make that work, I would have to go to bed very early because we do need sleep. And that's something I unfortunately didn't get a chance to ask Hal because he had a limited time to be on the show, he had another interview that he had to do. And I didn't get time to, to get into that. So if you're having sleep issues, if you're having insomnia, or if you wake up multiple times, maybe you need to get that handled first. Maybe you need to implement sleep hygiene first before you start trying to wake up at 5.30 in the morning or 6.30 in the morning or something crazy like how 4.30 in the morning. Make sure you handle that because you don't want to take away from your body. Sleep is important. We know it's important. Now, 
we can get by on less sleep. And it's up to us to figure out what that is. But I will say this, if you are working out hard, if you've got high levels of stress in your life, if you've got all these things going on, you don't just add something or subtract something from your life, something that's restorative from your life and expect things to go well. So make sure you keep that in mind because if you're you're training so hard, you need that extra sleep, but you're only getting six hours because you've got to wake up early and do this miracle morning thing, just keep that into consideration. Don't burn the candle at both ends. You're a human being as powerful and amazing and superhero-like as you are, there are limitations. You can't go without breathing air. You can't go without drinking water. You'll die. You, you can't go without eating for too long. You'll die. And if you have poor quality sleep or not enough sleep and you do that for long enough, it's going to have serious ramifications. So make sure when you experiment with waking up early, you take care of the sleep hygiene first. You take care of your sleep issues first and figure out how this factors into your life. But again, I would love to hear your thoughts with the Miracle Morning. If you do try it out, let me know. Go to legendarylightpodcast.com, send me an email, or leave a message in the chat. That's all I've got for you. Have an incredible week, and I'll speak to you soon.